Charlotte Elliott had an amazing spiritual heritage. Her grandfather was a very famous British preacher by the name of Henry Venn. And her father and her brothers were also ministers of the gospel. But how many know that you can grow up in an amazing home, have great Christians around you, but personally not connect with God? And we recognize that Christianity, you know, is just one generation away from extinction. We really have to have our own encounter with God. And even as parents, like, if you know, you want your children to experience what you have experienced with God. And so I know every parent prays for that. And I believe that if we are sincere about that, God will hear our cry. And so when Charlotte was in her 30s, she experienced a very serious illness that left her in poor health and in significant pain, and it affected her for her entire life. These feelings of weakness and helplessness that stem from her physical problems actually affected her emotional well-being, and many times she suffered bouts of depression. One day when she was especially depressed and she was quite irritable, Dr. Caesar Milana, a Swiss minister of the gospel, he was also a musician and a very close family friend, asked her if she had ever experienced God's peace in the midst of her difficulty. She became very upset, very defensive. Kind of sounds like some people when you're talking to them, you know, they don't want to hear the truth, but she got a little upset with them. But then later on, when she was feeling a little physically better, she began to reflect on what he had said to her and uh, she sought him out and, 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 and actually confessed her sense of alienation or her distance from God. And she said, you know, Dr. Milan, I really do want to be saved. I want to come to know Jesus, but I don't know how to do it. He replied simply and sincerely, just come to him as you are. And those words were used by God to speak into her heart. And even that very day, Charlotte put her faith in Christ and for the very first time in her life, peace began to fill her heart. She continued, as I mentioned, to struggle with bouts of depression, sometimes physical pain would strike her, but she began to rely on Jesus in a way she had never done before, and he was helping her through those difficult times. On one particularly trying day, she was unable to go to a church function that she really wanted to go to, but she was physically weak, and she was experiencing intense pain, and she was deeply depressed, and feeling that she could do nothing to serve Christ. And so, in her misery, she reached for a pen and paper and began to pour out her feelings. And as she wrote, the words that came to her from Dr. Milan came back to her, and she felt as if her great burden was now being lifted from her soul. She penned these words, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. She wrote more. There was other stanzas. She published it as a hymn anonymously in a small Christian newspaper. And unknown to Charlotte, this little hymn began to gain popularity and traction in England. Eventually, a wealthy person took it, printed it on a beautiful leaflet. And one day, her medical doctor was coming to visit her and knew that she had some struggles with, you know, despair and stuff. So he found this little leaflet and he thought, she's going to really benefit from this. And she brought it over to give it to her. And to her surprise, it was the very words that she had penned years ago. And she realized that not only was her writing a source of personal comfort, but that her writing could bring comfort into the lives of many others. And so Charlotte found her ministry, began to write some beautiful hymns. Years later, when Just As I Am had become known throughout England, her brother, who was, I'd mentioned earlier, pastor, commented that probably the single hymn had borne more fruit 
than probably his entire pastoral ministry. It was just that effective. A century later, when young Billy Graham, some of us may have heard of him, um, he went forward to receive Christ at an evangelistic service. The first song of invitation that night was, you guessed it, just as I am. And so Billy Graham was so deeply moved by that that when he began his evangelistic ministries, guess what he did? He chose the song, Just As I Am, for the next 50 plus years to be the song that people would come forward to receive Christ. What an amazing thing how Charlotte's discovery of God's incredible love was now used to touch millions of people's lives. You know, over the past two years, we've studied the book of Job together, and what became clear to my mind, and hopefully clear to your mind as I was presenting it, was that neither Job nor his friends really knew the full extent of the gracious nature of God. It's really the truth. I think we, we you know, that's one of the great discoveries that we all have to make sometime in our journey. I don't believe we really grasp the nature of God's amazing love for us. As a matter of fact, the apostle Paul prayed one of his great prayers in the book of Ephesians chapter three that we might know what? The height and the depth, the breadth and the length of what? The love of God. That's something that we need to have God's spirit reveal into our lives. It's interesting in the epilogue in the book of Job, God's attitudes towards Job's friend was, he was upset with them because they had totally misrepresented him. And he, and he writes this in the epilogue in chapter 42. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. You see, they had this idea, this, and I think a lot of people develop this idea that God is this cosmic judge, just waiting to pounce on people when they mess up, you know? You mess up, God's gonna get you kind of thing. And I, you know, we also have this idea that if I do the right thing, God is obligated to bless us. And we get into this wiring, and so what happens is that we do the right stuff, and then when we don't have the results we expect, we're angry with God. I've met so many Christians, they're disappointed at God, they're disillusioned with God, they're angry at God, you know, they're upset because God didn't come through, because look, I did this for you, God, why aren't you doing that? And that's this whole concept that comes out of this retribution theology that I've been sharing in the last couple of years. But let me just say this. Two weeks ago when I preached this final message from the book of Job, I pointed out that even though it's true that God does bless us when we obey him and you know, God does you know, address and discipline us when we misbehave, you know, God will do those things. I said that is true, but that is not the operating principle upon which God is relating to our planet. And I pointed out to us that God is operating in grace and that everything you and I have, it's not because we deserved it. And once we understand that, it really changes our orientation. And I really believe it's important that we need to have an orientation change. That you and I need to see our lives totally different. It's not so much what we do and that we earn this and that we're obligated and all the rest of it. I think we're hardwired for this stuff. But that we come to an understanding that whatever I have in this life, God has been so gracious to me. And when you start having that as your fundamental underlying, you know, default switch inside of you, everything starts changing in your life. You know, it's interesting that when Moses asked to see God, God did something very special. You might remember the story. He actually said, you know, Moses, a big request. You know, most people don't show up and see God. It's kind of an overwhelming experience. So God said, I'm gonna kind of shelter you a little bit. He says, why don't I tuck you into the cleft of a rock and I'll just kind of pass by and you'll see my backward parts. That's kind of the story in the book of Exodus. And he says this in Exodus chapter 34. And he says, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming. And now we're getting an interesting 
aspect of it is to the nature of God. He said this, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And then the latter part of that verse goes on to say, but yet God will still punish those that are wicked even until the third generation. And what do we tend to focus in on? The latter part. We're all talking about generational sins and, you know, and I'm going, hold it. I mean, this part says he's going to maintain love to thousands. I mean, you know, why can't we focus in on the front part of it? Because God is revealing to Moses his character here. And that's what I'm trying to bring out today. As we turn to Psalm 107, the focus is on God's love. It says here in Psalm 107, verse 1, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good. Why? His love endures forever. That should be our focus, okay? But you know that word that's translated both in Exodus and here in Psalms, it's the Hebrew word, it's actually the word hesed, hesed. You could actually add a ch in front of it. Ha. You know, that's how they probably say it in the Jewish world, right? They, okay, hesed. <laughs> I'm trying to get this etched in your mind because when we get done with this, we're gonna talk about the hesed of God and you're gonna understand why we're gonna do this. Do you know that is such a powerful word in the Hebrew language and it speaks of a loyal or steadfast love that's usually based on a relationship. But I like what William Kynes, he's written an article on, he says if we wanna grasp the merciful and gracious nature of God, we have to comprehend this word hesed. But what does it really mean? And he says this, in English Bibles, it's, you know, how many know that, you know, our English Bibles, this is not the original language God was talking in. I mean, you know, he was revealing himself to people who spoke Hebrew, and so it was in the Hebrew language. And so what we have is a translation of the Old Testament's in Hebrew, and the New Testament's in Greek, so we have a translation into the English language. And some of us, if we know, how many here know more than one language? Just raise your hand, real quick. You know more than one language. All the people that know more than one language, and you can just assent to this, you know that there are some words in the language that doesn't, that word is not found in the other language. There's no equivalent to that word, okay? And so now we're trying to com convey an idea that there's no equivalent for. You're trying to explain to people what this word means, but there's really no equivalent for that word. And hesed is one of those words. In the English Bible, hesed is translated with a variety of words like kindness, sometimes it's translated love, sometimes it's steadfast love, sometimes it's loyalty, sometimes it's favor, sometimes it's devotion, sometimes it's mercy. How many are getting an idea? This word has, you know, big meaning, you know? And what really rocks our boat, and I love this, this got me really excited. He says, attempts to define the word of fill scholarly articles, dissertations, and even entire books. Matter of fact, I was so tempted to buy a book by the scholar, and the book is on one word, said. That's it. It's all about the hesed of God, okay? And so they're trying to figure this out. He says, as a matter of fact, he says, which testifies both to its theological importance and also to its indeterminate meaning. In other words, we don't know what it totally means. Isn't this neat? The scholars don't exactly know what this word fully means. It's beyond the scope of their understanding. They see it applied all over the place and they're trying to pin it down, but they can't wrestle the gorilla, you know? It's just a bigger idea. And I kind of get excited about this and you'll see why in a minute. You know, he goes on to say, uh, debates have congealed over, around disputes over the word's relation to covenant, 
whether it's inspired by mutual obligation or just gracious condensa- uh, condensation, uh, condensation, uh, not condensation, condescension, condescension, what it means, God's willingness to come down to our level, okay? And, and what is he basically saying? He's saying people don't understand what triggers it. They don't fully understand the nature of it. It's bigger, okay? Is everybody, everybody getting an idea now? And so I'm gonna start using the word has said instead of the word that's used in the NIV for love. How many get this? Because I want you to think, because you know, when we think of love, we think of a certain thing in our minds. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's bigger than that. It's beyond what you think. That's why we're gonna use the word has said. You know, he goes on to say, has said is never an abstract feeling or goodwill, but always entails practical action on behalf of another. Of the 246 times it appears in the Old Testament, the majority refer to the vertical plane of God's relationship with people. In other words, this is how it connects to God and people. But you know, sometimes it's people to people. And I love the story. Remember when David, you know, he had made a covenant with Jonathan. Jonathan was killed and then David was king now and he's looking around and he says, you know, is there any descendants of Jonathan where I can show has said to? You know, it may be translated loving kindness to or care or concern. See, the has said, I want to do something for this person. You know, what a beautiful picture, isn't it, of this word. So in our text today, we who have experienced the has said, the loving kindness, the grace, the mercy, the goodness of God, we need to tell our story. Listen to what it says in Psalm 107. You know how I got into the sermon? Psalm 107 is a communal song of thanksgiving. It means that the Israelites, when they get together, they would do it in a community like this and they would recite it. They would say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Verse two, let the redeemed of the Lord. Who are the redeemed? They're the people who have experienced God's said. They're the people that just didn't just hear about it. They've experienced it in their lives, and it's changed them. It says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Do you know why we come to church? So we can talk to each other, and not just about sports, and not just about the new dress, or the best sale on, or, you know, uh, what happened to my kid or my grandkid. We're to get together and tell our stories. We're to get together and say, do you know what God did for me? You can't believe the mercy of God that I experienced. How many have ever had those nights where you sit around a living room or something, have a few believers over and say, I'd really love to hear your story. And you listen to these stories and you just go, wow, what an amazing story of God's has said in your life. It says here, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands from east and west, from north and south. Most scholars believe this was a post-exilic psalm. They were gathered back after the exile. Let us remind that it's written in a poetic fashion, and here we find four powerful expressions, and I'm gonna identify them very quickly today, that reveal his has said to us, which would generate thanksgiving back to God. And the first experience of his has said um, is, is the direction given in the desert places of our lives. You know, a desert place is a difficult place. How many know if you're stuck in the desert? It's a place of trying to survive. A desert is a place where you can easily get lost. You can wander. It's pretty, you know, there's, there's no, it's not a place of permanence. It's a place of struggle. Death is always nearby. And the Israelites had wandered in the desert for 40 years, and a lot of them had died in the desert. We know that. And here in our text, we see this verse that they had wandered in exile. The desert speaks of our own personal lost condition. 
It's where we've been groping to survive apart from God. As one writer put it, these were those who were lost in the world, but what they discovered as they cried out to God was his love that would bring them safely home. Listen to Psalm 107.4. Some wandered in the wasteland, desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and they were thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. In other words, they lost vitality. You know, how often in our lives we don't know which way to turn? You ever had those experiences? You go, I don't know where to go with this. I don't know what to do anymore. I'm at a loss. I'm perplexed at where to move forward. I've lost my way. You know, life is actually a journey through the wasteland of this world, really. We're often dissatisfied. We're often struggling. We often come to a point where we feel, I just can't go on. You know, I know that's true because people end their lives. There's a state of despair, hopelessness, lostness, and it's in our culture. It's all around us. What to do, where to turn. We're at the end of ourselves. Our lives, our vitality, our joy is gone. What to do? Listen to verse six. But then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. I tell you, that's what we should do. Friends, we had always to pray and not to give up. Turning to God is a great thing. You know, can I just say in my own personal life, I find myself praying more and more. I ask God for help more and more. In every detail of life, I find myself saying, Lord, I just can't do this apart from you. I can't handle the challenges that lie before me. I need the energy. I need your anointing. I need wisdom. I need understanding. I'm crying out to you, oh God. And I can let you know I'm not disappointed because God comes and he, and he answers in a powerful way. It says, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Do you know what was said of Abraham that he was a pilgrim looking for God's city? Isn't that a neat expression? Hebrews says that in chapter 11. By faith Abraham when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance. Obeyed and went. Even though he did not know where he was going. How many have ever felt in your life that your life is like a zigzag? You have no idea. You're just kind of going, God, are you confused? Do you know where the location is? I mean, when is this going to come to an end? I mean, I mean, this seems like a bunch of detours, and sometimes I feel like I'm at a dead end. Sometimes I feel like I've come up to the Red Sea. Is there even a way through this experience? Am I talking to the right group? All right. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. You know, the city speaks of permanence. A city speaks of security and safety. A city speaks of relationship and community. It speaks of abundance and prosperity. It really does. Why do people move to cities? Because that's where the work is. Why do people move to cities? There's other people there. You know, and in the ancient world, cities had walls. And it spoke of a place of protection and security. And so we all long for that. But Abraham wasn't looking for a city built by man. He was looking for the city who was built by God. He was looking for something totally permanent. And folks, I'm gonna tell you, in this life, we're only passing through. We're looking for the ultimate permanent city. We're looking for the city of God. So what is, what is our response when God hears our cry and finds us in our lost condition? I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was once blind, but now I see. I'm so glad God saw me wandering in a desert, having got a clue about life, making stupid decisions, but all of a sudden he reached down and rescued me. I cried out to him and he delivered me and led me to himself because the city is not actually a location. The city is a person when we come to know God. I love what Alec Moyer writes. Often on earth we find in retrospect or hindsight that what we thought was a winding pathway became the straight road of divine direction. God led a straight way, it says, verse seven. He led a straight way to a city where they could settle. 
How many times has God heard your cry? But the problem so often in our lives is we fail to thank him for answering our prayer. Let me move on to the second experience that we have. It's simply the deliverance from the dark places of our lives. The darkness described here is a place of hopelessness and despair, a place of imprisonment, as which the psalmist points out was created by their own rebellion to God's word. How many can say, I did things my way? We've, we've sang the Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. And uh, we found out a little later on it wasn't the best way. Anybody discovered that? You know? It says here in verse 10, some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering an iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no help. You know, Alec Moyer is a great scholar and he says this. He, this reminds us of being in the garden in Genesis 3 and the purpose of the serpent who comes to make the word of God seem unnaturally restrictive and unwarranted denial of human liberty. How many have felt this way? You know, I just don't like to, you know, I, I feel restricted. I feel like, you know, living for God is too restrictive for me. I don't, I don't like, you know, these parameters that he's defining in my life. It's not fitting into what I want to do. Can I just suggest that God's boundaries are for our protection? But we have to learn that. Sometimes we go, hey, I'm gonna do my thing. Don't tell us we don't do our, our own thing. But there's a freedom in obeying God's word. Listen, the psalmist, it says, I will walk about in freedom for I have sought out your precepts. God's word, obeying God's word leads to freedom. Disobeying God's word, we think we're shoving off the shackles of, of restriction, but what we end up in is, is bondage. We end up in addictions. We end up in struggle. We end up in all kinds of messes in our lives. You know, and, I, and we, we can't say that we haven't made these choices where we wanted to do our own thing and we did our own thing. If the prophet Isaiah was standing here today, he would tell us this. He would say, hey, we all, like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us has gone our own way. You want to argue with Isaiah? Inspired by God? He'd say, every last one of us in this room, we did it our way. Boy, did we ever find out it caused a lot of problems. We entered into the prison house of sin, shackled by addictions, hang-ups, burdens, pain, experiencing loss, broken relationships, loss of freedom. Wow, what a mess we got ourselves in. And then we sit down in our little shackled, chained-up situations. Oh, God. That's a good thing to do, by the way. Cry out to God. That's what he says. Then they cried to the Lord, verse 13, in their trouble. And what did he do? He said, I don't got time for you. You guys kind of walked away from me. You kind of rejected me. Why should I even put up with you? No, it doesn't say that. It says, what? But he saved them from their distress. And he brought them out of darkness, the outer darkness, and broke away their chains. Yay! <laughs> you know? How does God do this for us? What does it cost God to give us forgiveness? and freedom from our addictions. Well, it says here, and the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. You say, well, who's the him? Who's Isaiah talking about? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because it was another guy way in the New Testament. He asked the same question. Philip's walking along a desert. He runs up to a chariot and he hears a man reading Isaiah. And the prophet says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch goes, how can I? He says, unless someone explains it to me. So he invites Philip, come on up and sit here and explain it to me. And the eunuch says to Philip, tell me please, who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. He has laid on him, the him is Jesus, 
Jesus who died on the cross, Jesus who bore our sins, Jesus who bore our addictions, Jesus who bore our hangups, our problems, our depression, our doubt, our despair. He bore it all. What an amazing thing. We need to get a hold of this, folks. I'm telling you something very powerful here today. What happens when we cry out to God? He saves us from our addictions. He, listen to what it says here. Let, it says, he brought them out of darkness, outer darkness, and broke away their chains. Verse 14, who broke their chains? God did. You know, a lot of us, we don't believe this. I'm gonna tell you here today, if you cry out to God, Jesus is powerful enough to set you free from despair, to set you free from addiction. You know, nature of sin is addiction. Do you know that? Sin will lead you into addiction, lead you into a bondage. You know, some people are, you know, it starts out very simple. Maybe some of you here are struggling today. Maybe you, you started out, you had pain in your body, you went to the doctor, he gave you a prescription, you're taking the prescription, but pretty soon you can't stop taking that prescription. You've become addicted to legal drugs. You're a godly person, you're a good person. You never intended to be addicted, but you got addicted. Or maybe you're here today, you know, got into the wrong stuff. How many guys are struggling with pornography? That's an addiction. It affects relationships. It destroys marriages. I deal with it all the time. I got all the fallout stuff, you know. I'm a pastor. I deal with this stuff. What I want to say to you today, Jesus is greater than your addiction. He can set you free from pornography. He can set you free from chemical addiction. He can set you free. You know, some of you, you started out having a glass of wine or two, and pretty soon you get in a crisis, you have more than two. And pretty soon you find yourself hiding a bottle somewhere in the house. And there's two bottles hiding in the house. And pretty soon there's three bottles hiding in the house. And you're addicted. But I want to declare to you today, call out to Jesus. He's the one that can set you free from the addiction. Amen? You know, you know God can use human agency. I understand that. But it starts by calling out to him. And he can direct our paths. And maybe we come to a group that deals with addictions and stuff like that. But my whole point is simply this. We need to learn how to call out to God. And then as we call out to God, what does he do? He delivers us. He breaks us free from those shackles, it says. And then what should be our response? Let us give thanks to the Lord for his said, his unfailing love, his said, his wonderful deeds for mankind, for he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. Let me go out to the third one. Boy, we're just moving along today. It's found after our disobedience has led to severe affliction. How often have we ignored God and willfully done what is wrong and then we've experienced great distress in our life. Look at verse 17. Some became fools because of their rebellious ways and suffered addiction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. You know, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul says, we can start out like in the book of Romans. It says there, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And what happens? Although they claim to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds and animals and reptiles. Almost every year I go to India. Listen, they worship all these things. But I'm gonna just say this. In North America, we worship too. And I'll tell you what we're worshiping today. We have, we have denied God's rightful place in our life. We have elevated humanity. That's true. We worship man. We worship 
technology, we worship science, we think that this is gonna solve all the problems. Let me tell you something. You know, those are wonderful things. God allows us to be very creative. I think because you know, God's creative, he's allowed us in his image to be creative. He's allowed us to do things, but let me tell you something, we're no match for the challenges that life presents itself. And when we turn our back on God thinking we're smart, we become stupid. But that doesn't, that's not what the word fools means there though. Fool means morally bankrupt, morally delinquent. And then it goes on to say what? Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Haven't you noticed something in our culture? We've become very sensual. Anybody notice that? It's a very promiscuous culture. We're very sensual. But I'll tell you, in Ephesians, it tells us when you become sensual, you lack sensitivity. And I've noticed something. In our human relationships, we become less sensitive to one another because we've become more sensual. Very fascinating. I'm just quoting scriptures, but this is what's actually happening in our culture, and I'm watching this thing develop around and I'm watching the brokenness that it's creating in our culture. Because you know, God creates something in a certain way. You know, the enemy doesn't create anything. He just distorts God's good gifts. It's all he's doing. He's distorting what God has blessed us with. It's all he's doing. It says, as a result of this, so often the result of our sin is seen in our mental, emotional, relational, and physical breakdown. That's the consequence of sin. I see it all the time. Emotional breakdown, mental breakdown, all these things that are happening. Tragedy. But, we're, but you know, our culture says, do this, do that. I'm not saying these things are necessarily bad or wrong, but listen to what the psalmist says. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and what happened? He saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Why don't we turn to God? Why don't we cry out to God? Why don't we ask God for help? Why don't we say, God, I can't do it without you. I need you. Please come. And God will hear that desperate cry of our lives. And God is a deliverer. He's a rescuer. Beautiful. And he brings healing into our lives. And then as he rescues us, what should we do? Let us give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love, his said and his wonderful deeds for mankind. But let me move on to the fourth one. And the fourth one is just simply rescuing from the disasters that strike our lives. You know, it's interesting that he uses the picture of the sea. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of imagery of the sea. It's always talk about storms. Those are talking about things that are beyond human control. You know, we, we, we're so funny. We think we've got things under control. And then a tsunami comes along. We're not in control. Volcano comes. Tornado comes. How many know these acts of nature mess us up? You know? Yeah, we try to warn each other what's coming down the pike, but when they happen, thousands of people's lives many times are taken just like that. Disaster strikes. Listen to the text. What we discover in every storm, in every tragedy, in every crisis that comes our way, it's an opportunity for us to trust God. Verse 23, someone out in the ship, sea and ships, they were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep, for he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. Oh, I gotta stop here and ask the question, who's creating the storm? Thank you very much, and you know what do we do? We think it's the devil. I'm telling you what's happened. We've allowed Greek philosophy to infiltrate our thinking. We're actually Platonists. You know Plato? We're Platonists. What do you mean? 
We have a dualism in our thinking. We've got good and evil as a separate and distinctly dualistic, battling each other out, you know? And so God's on one side and Satan's on the other, and it's almost like it's an even battlefield. Folks, that's all Greek philosophy. It's not biblical in one iota. Do you know God is in his own category? There's no one else like him. That's what it means when it says God is holy. You can't even define him. He's in his own category. He's in a league all by himself. Satan is not even in the same league. He can't even do anything on the planet without God saying, okay, I've decided we'll do this. I'll use you as my servant to do this nasty thing. It's a whole different thinking. I know, pastor, I don't know if I like where you're going with this. Well, I'm reading the text. What does it say here? It says, he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. God's the one that created the storm. I'm going to suggest that it's God that creates crisis. You don't think in Job's life it was God that did that? Of course it was. Who initiated the whole conversation? Hey, have you considered my servant Job? Satan goes, yeah, I've been running around the earth. I'm noticing all kinds of people. I noticed Job. Yeah, I can't even mess with the dude. You got him protected. He said, but you know, lift your hand against him, God, and smack him around a little, and he'll curse you to his face. Then God later on says, you, you know what? I, you provoked me to do this. In other words, the conversation. I think God wanted to totally transform Job and his friends and change their whole understanding of who God was. You know, there's a reason for crisis. We just, we're walking around going, you know, I just want to go through earth with no hassle. Please leave me alone, God. You know, I love it. My, I, got, I got to tell the story. I, once in a while, I, I use it because it's so cute. You know, Andrea, my oldest daughter, is going through a hard time. I said, Andrea, God's deepening you. She goes, Dad, I wish you'd just leave me alone and I could just remain shallow. In other words, <laughs> I don't want to be bothered by the difficulty. Isn't that kind of, I mean, at least she was honest about it. I mean, she, she's just telling me how she felt. Some of us are going, that's how I feel too, Pastor. I mean, I, I'm kind of where Andrea's at, you know, just leave me alone. I want to stay shallow. I don't want this problem. But God brings this on, and there's a storm at sea, and it says it mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. This is the ultimate roller coaster experience. You guys pay a lot of money for this. Just go to sea, and there's a big storm. There's 50-foot waves going up and down. These guys were professional sailors, it says, in their peril, their courage melted away. They couldn't do anything about it. Do you know there comes a moment in our crisis that all of humanity's ingenuity and innovation can't do anything about it, and we're at a place of jeopardy, and we're saying, oh my God, we're gonna perish. You know, we've had moments in our lives, we have all had that. I remember one time I was out on a lake and a storm came up. It was pretty nasty, and water's coming in the boat. My two brothers are with me, and my one brother, he's, he's dramatic. He's an entertainer. He, he ought to be an entertainer. He's dramatic. We're going down, you know. We're all going to die. I'm sitting at the boat. And I'm going, well, I'm ready to go. My other brother, like, just freaking out because he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing with God. He's going, I'm not ready to go. <laughs> so I'm having a little conversation with these boys in the boat. And I'm saying, well, you guys better get right with God because we may go down, you know. You didn't do that, Pastor. I go, oh, yeah. I did that to them. <laughs> well, sometimes you got to get people. I, I say, hey, this is a great opportunity. Have a good conversation about where you are with God, right? I mean, if you thought you're dying in the next few minutes, maybe you need to get right with God. So we had a great conversation. Got them to think. And anyways, very intense. 
It's, so finally it says they reeled and staggered like drunkards. I could just see them on deck, you know, just barely making it around there. It says they were at their wits end. They couldn't even come up with a solution. The storms of life teach us that we're never in control. The storm of life will rip away your sense of control. How many hate it when you're not in control? Come on now, all the control freaks, raise your hand. Come on, you guys. <clears throat> oh, that's, you guys are being honest. That's so beautiful. I like that. You know, I had to learn this. I go, I'm not in control. And you know, it becomes very freeing when you finally go, I'm letting go of all control. I'm putting my hand in God's and saying, I'm totally trusting you. If you don't show up, God, we're hooped. The boat's going down. But I've discovered something. When you do that, you realize you were never in control. You were just a legend in your own mind. You know, God's always been in control. You might as well trust him anyways. You know, he's allowing this thing to happen. It says they called out to him. And then it says what? They cried out to the Lord, verse 28, in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. I love this. He stilled the storm to a whisper. Can you hear the imagery? It's raging. He stills the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad and it grew calm. And he guided them to their desired haven. You know, my mind works like uh, a concordance. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. I start looking at a scripture and immediately about 15 scriptures go, you know, you just hit my brain and it just starts shooting scripture. And the, the scriptures that immediately come to my mind is found in the Gospel of Mark. I love this text because it immediately brings me to another story. And here's the story I like. You know, it's a story about Jesus. One day when evening came, he said to his disciples, oh, by the way, let's get in the boat. We're going to go to the other side of the lake. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. And a furious squall came up. That's a nice word for saying a bad storm. A nasty storm came up. And the waves were breaking over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. In other words, water's filling in the boat. And just remember, some of these guys are fishermen, right? And they've, they've been on this lake all their life. They've been fishing. And here's their response to the situation. Jesus is in the stern. He's at the back sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples wake him and they say to him, teacher, don't you care we're going to drown? That tells me they're in panic mode. How many know they're in panic mode? And these guys are fishermen. They, you know, if they could have... They wouldn't have bothered Jesus. They could have handled this. But this is a bad storm. They think they're going to drown. He gets up. What does he do? He rebukes the wind and the, says to the waves, could you guys just please be quiet? He's talking to the waves. Be still. The wind, completely calm. Now, I don't know about you. I've tried to talk to, you know, I've tried to command the weather in Alberta. It just does not fly. <laughs> No, Lord, we need a sunny day today. It's just raining, I'm going, or snowing, you know, whatever it's doing, you know. Anybody have any real success with really, you know, telling the weather to shape up? It's minus 40. I'm thinking, hey, it could be 20 above, right? You know, 20. And it's like minus 40. I'm thinking 20, 20, God, 20. Can we get the numbers right? Goes up to 39, minus 39. Thank you, Lord. I just don't have that ability. You know, I just can't get it to do it. But Jesus here, he just talks to the weather and it changes. How many know that that kind of freaked it? No, they were freaked out about the storm. Now notice the next verse. They're terrified. But the terror has moved from the storm to what? They're saying to each other, who is this? The wind and the waves. 
He's telling them what to do, and they're obeying him. They're freaking out. How would you like to be with somebody that could actually talk about the weather and just, you know, you're in a storm and the person stands up and talks to the weather and everything changes. You're kind of looking at this person like, who is this guy? That's what they were saying. Who is this guy? But I think this ties back to, they're thinking of this psalm. These guys know the Bible. They're going, only God does this. Only God can rescue like this. This, this Jesus, he's not just a man. This Jesus, he's God in the flesh. He is the rescuer. Oh, I love the story. You know what Psalm 107 tells us? It's the Lord who speaks, stills the storms to a whisper. It's the Lord who hushes the waves of the sea. It's the Lord who rescues us from our sins. Who is it? that finds us when we're lost? Who is it that delivers us from our imprisonment because of our rebellion? Who is it that heals us when we're afflicted because of our sins? Who is it that calms our troubles and our sorrows? Who is it? Who is it, friends? Some of you are gonna know. I went to a church in Seattle, brand new Christian. Interesting building. There's kind of a foyer Kind of an overhang, you know, kind of a, what do you call it? Kind of like a porch where you come into the front doors. And above the porch is this big neon sign. I love this neon sign. It's etched in my mind. I even worked on staff in that church. You know what that neon sign said? Jesus saves. Jesus rescues. Jesus delivers. Why do we give thanks to God? because of his said, And the greatest expression of God's said is Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Let's stand. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, God's Spirit speaking into my life. I'm not here to embarrass you. That's never my goal. But with every head bowed today, it's between you and God now. You're saying, you know what? I got trouble in my life. There's a storm in my life. Maybe there's an addiction in my life. I just feel so lost, Pastor. I don't know which way to turn. Maybe you're overwhelmed by life circumstances. There's all kinds of reasons why we could be at this place of desperation today. But you're here today. I don't think you're here by accident. I I, I prayed that you'd be here by God's providence. I had people praying. I said, Lord, bring the people here today who need to be delivered. Bring the people here today who need to be rescued. Bring the people here today who need to be saved. Bring the people here today who are despairing and discouraged that they can find hope. I prayed that prayer because I believe in this. I believe God brings you here for a reason. You know, this isn't just another week for me. This is an opportunity for us to encounter God. You're here today, say, Pastor, you have no idea what's going on in my life. There's addictions, there's struggles. But listen to what I'm telling you today. If you call out to him, he will hear your cry. If you call out to him, he has so much power, he can rescue you. He can deliver you. He can heal you. He can help you. God is talking to you today. You sense it in your innermost being. The Spirit of God's been talking to you. And you're here today, and that's you, and you say, you know what, I want to be free. I want to be saved. I want to know Jesus. I want to be saved from my sin. I want to be delivered from my addictions. 
I want to be free from my brokenness. I'm tired of being lost. I'm, par- I'm tired of floundering. I'm tired of, you know, struggling. I'm just going to call out to him today. I'm going to let go of, you know, trying to do it my way. I'm going to surrender to his way. And that's you today. Just raise your hand. That's you. I'm going to pray for you. Just raise your hand today. Hands are going up all over the place. That's good. Just re- leave them up. Don't be afraid. I'm going to pray. We're not... Nobody knows why you're raising your hand today. I gave so many different opportunities, right? You know, I'm not saying you're a bad person. See, that's how we look at our lives, you know. I'm having a problem, I'm a bad person. No, no, don't think that way. I'm a needy person. But you know, I'm gonna tell you a little secret, we're all needy people. All we like sheep have gone astray. Don't ever say, I'm the only person that's struggling. That's not the truth. Everyone in this room, we've made mistakes. It's not, including your pastor, I've made lots of mistakes. We all make them, folks. I want to pray with you today that you will experience deliverance, rescue from your distress. Father, that's my prayer. You see our hearts, you know the challenges, you know the predicaments. Sometimes we didn't do it, sometimes you allowed a storm to come our way, sometimes it was of our doing. We made a poor choice. We made a sinful choice. We've made, we wanted to do our thing. We felt restricted by your word and your will and we did our thing and now we're in the prison house. I pray today that you would rescue us. I pray today that you would hear our cry. I pray today that you would save us, you would deliver us, that you would heal us. Lord, that we would experience your said, your love. May we be overwhelmed by your love today so that at the end of the day we could say, I've been redeemed. I have a story that I need to tell someone of God's grace, love, his has said in my life, and I am so thankful for it. Lord, I am thankful for your love. I'm thankful for your has said. I'm thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for your favor. I'm thankful, Lord, for your mercy. I'm thankful, Lord, for all the good things that you've done. When I was perplexed and in despair, you've heard my cry. Thankful for these things. Lord, may we be the most grateful people. May we just be so full of thanksgiving because we've experienced your said. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave today.